Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges. I'm a pediatric resident at the Medical College of Georgia, and I will be your host. Today, I'm with Catherine McLeod, a pediatric hospitalist, and Dan McCullum, an emergency medicine physician here at MCG. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Zach. I'm glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Zach. Today, we'll be discussing the management of the well-appearing febrile infant less than 60 days old. I want to emphasize well-appearing. We'll save the discussion of the critically ill neonate for another time. Dr. McLeod, will you get us started by giving us some background information and tell us why this topic is so important? Yes, well, obviously, fever in young infants is common and seen daily in most pediatric emergency departments. In these young infants, fever often is the only sign of infection. Even febrile infants can be well-appearing but remain at high risk of bacterial infections. Unfortunately, since most of these infants will have a normal physical exam, the exam is often unhelpful to differentiate infants with a self-limited viral illness from those who are presenting with early signs of potential significant bacterial infection. Currently, there are no consensus guidelines regarding the optimal management of these patients, but there are some new tools like the step-by-step approach and the PCARN rule for febrile infants that can help distinguish which well-appearing infants may be at lower risk for bacterial infection. Hopefully, by the end of this discussion, we will all know more about which infants require a full evaluation and empiric antibiotics and admission versus those that may be safe for limited evaluation and outpatient management. Let's work through a clinical case to get us started. Our patient is a six-week-old female brought to the emergency department with a history of fever at home. Her mother reports no other symptoms, including rhinorrhea, cough, vomiting, diarrhea, or rash. There are no known sick contacts. Her past medical history is otherwise unremarkable. She was born full term after an uncomplicated pregnancy. She is primarily breastfed, and she received all of her routine newborn care. In the ED, she is febrile to 38.5 Celsius, but is well-appearing on exam without obvious source of infection. How would you approach the initial evaluation of this patient? So these patients require very careful history and physical exam. Subtle differences in behavior may be the only clue these infants give as a sign of bacterial infection. Questions that I'm sure to ask include details about the fever, how was it obtained, was it axillary or rectal, and was there subjective fever only. Studies do show mothers are pretty accurate when they say their child had a fever, even when they don't have a thermometer, so I tend to believe them. Has the baby been more sleepy or fussy than usual or been more difficult to soothe or arouse? How is the baby feeding? I usually ask about frequency and the volume of the feeds. Are they wetting diapers like usual? Or has there been increased vomiting? Are there any known sick contacts? Also, does the infant have any other related symptoms like cough, congestion, or diarrhea that may raise your suspicion for a viral infection? but they are still at high risk for concurrent bacterial infections. Dr. McLeod, you mentioned that it was important to find out exactly how the temperature was taken. Why would I care about whether it was a rectal temp versus one of those forehead thermometers that I keep hearing about? I prefer a rectal temperature because it's more reliable in young infants compared to axillary or other sites. So, Dr. McLeod, what parts of the past medical history are critically important? I definitely want to know, was the baby born at term or preterm, since preterm infants are typically at higher risk for infections depending on the severity of their prematurity. Were there any problems with mother's pregnancy or delivery? 
I'm careful to ask about mother's serologies, specifically the possibility of herpes and her group B strep status. I also want to know if the baby had any complications in the newborn nursery or has previously received a round of antibiotics. So Dr. McLeod, it almost seems like the mother's past medical history is a critical component of the baby's past medical history because of how young they are. Absolutely. There's not much past medical history to the baby at this point, so mom's history is very important. Thanks. That's a lot of important information. Sometimes it can be difficult to make a diagnosis by history because these patients are so young and spend much of their time feeding and sleeping. Also, sometimes new parents may not be familiar with signs of illness in a newborn infant. For example, lethargy, which can be a symptom of meningitis, can easily be mistaken that a baby is just more sleepy. What do you look for on physical exam? Make sure to not bypass the vital signs because they can give you important information. If a baby has unexplained tachycardia, you need to carefully evaluate that baby, looking for signs of poor perfusion, as this might be evidence of a serious infection. I feel blood pressures are hard to obtain, especially in a fussy baby, but hypotension is something to pay close attention to also, and is typically a late finding in pediatric sepsis. When examining an acutely ill infant, I start with the pediatric assessment triangle. Remember, the pediatric assessment triangle is a quick visual assessment that includes the general appearance, work of breathing, and color. If the baby is well-appearing without increased work of breathing or cyanosis, I can more comfortably move on to a detailed physical exam. In general, I want to see if the infant is alert or sleepy, remembering that lethargy or inability to arouse a baby can be a sign of critical illness. I check the mouth for lesions such as ulcers or more specifically vesicles as that could be a sign for a herpes infection. Observe the work of breathing, count the respiratory rate, and listen for crackles, wheezes, or asymmetric breast sounds. Next, listen to the heart sounds and assess peripheral perfusion. This can be done by measuring the capillary refill and make sure to compare brachial and femoral pulses. We also need to be careful to not miss cardiac disease in these infants. Feel for the liver edge as hepatomegaly can also be a sign of heart failure associated with viral myocarditis or a undiagnosed congenital cardiac abnormality. Every febrile neonate should be uncovered to allow for a complete skin exam, looking for rashes, including petechiae or vesicles. Careful examination of the genitalia for abnormalities, which could place the infant at higher risk for urinary tract infections. Next, evaluate the baby's tone. Hyper or hypotonia could be a very worrisome sign. And last, finish by performing a complete musculoskeletal exam as any focal tenderness or decreased range of motion could be evidence of osteomyelitis or septic arthritis. So at times, it can be really challenging to examine these children well, especially in the wintertime. They can be bundled up in multiple layers. I have to be careful to remember to completely undress the infant so I don't miss anything. Also, these febrile babies can be very irritable, and this makes getting a reliable heart and lung exam quite difficult. What temperature do you call a fever in these infants? 
We tell parents of infants less than two months old that a temperature of 38 degrees Celsius or 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or greater is significant and their infant will need to be evaluated. Even if the infant is not febrile on arrival, a history of having a temperature of 38 degrees Celsius or greater still places them at an increased risk of having a serious bacterial infection. And just remember at this age, the literature has shown that hypothermia less than 36 degrees Celsius or 97 degrees Fahrenheit is just as concerning and should be worked up as well. So when I was preparing for this podcast, many articles talked about serious bacterial infections and others would discuss invasive bacterial infections. Are they the same or how are they different? So serious bacterial infections classically include urinary tract infections, bacteremia, and meningitis, but occasionally bacterial pneumonia, gastroenteritis, and osteomyelitis. Skin and soft tissue infections are also included. Invasive bacterial infections only include bacterial meningitis and bacteremia because of the higher morbidity and mortality as compared to UTIs and other localized infections. Overall, when a young infant presents to the ED with fever, what is the chance that they actually have a significant infection? Poor viruses. We blame a lot on them, but it's true that they cause the majority of infections in febrile infants. Overall, infants less than 60 days old who present to the ED with a fever of at least 38 degrees Celsius have about an 8 to 10 percent chance of being diagnosed with a serious bacterial infection. UTI is by far the most common. Only about 2 percent of well-appearing febrile infants will be diagnosed with an invasive bacterial infection such as bacterial or bacterial meningitis. So what viral infections do we need to be concerned about in these patients? We cannot miss herpes simplex virus. It is not very common, but it may carry a high morbidity and mortality, especially if initial treatment is delayed. Remember that HSV can be transmitted by maternal shedding during delivery. It is most commonly diagnosed in infants less than one month and is exceedingly rare after six to eight weeks of age. So which infants do you test for HSV? Typically, we try to risk stratify these infants to guide testing. If the infant is less than one month old and there's a history of maternal HSV infection during pregnancy, especially a primary HSV infection at the time of delivery, then these infants should receive Empirique Cyclovir while awaiting HSV testing results of the CSF or mucous membrane sites. Remember that HSV presents in three different ways. The most common is skin, eye, and mouth. They can also present with CNS manifestations where you may see a seizure or systemic, which is often characterized by hepatitis with elevated AST and ALT. So it's particularly important that we not miss any cases of HSV, both because of how severe the condition can be, as well as the fact that we have a noticeable change in treatment, as HSV is one of the few viruses that we have directed therapies against. What other viral infections do we need to know about? Enterovirus is one of the most common causes of viral meningitis in infants. It's more common in the summer and fall and is often accompanied by blanching macular erythematous rash or at times petechial rash. This always gets my attention since petechiae can also be a sign of a much more serious bacterial illness like meningococcemia caused by Neisseria. 
though both bacterial and viral meningitis can cause fever and irritability in infants, CSF studies will help distinguish the two, and enteroviral meningitis is typically a self-limited illness that improves with supportive care alone. So you brought up petechiae as being very concerning. What exactly does that look like? Petechiae are a non-blanching pinpoint erythematous macule. Most of the rest of the common viral infections seen in infants less than two months are respiratory viruses like RSV, influenza, and rhinovirus. Rotavirus is a well-known cause of gastroenteritis, but it's becoming a milder illness due to routine immunizations. What are the most common bacterial infections in these infants? Previously, the most common bacterial infections in infants are the ones your medical students will list. Streptococcus pneumonia, Haemophilus influenza, Neisseria meningitidis, E. coli, group B strep, and listeria. Now, with vaccines, maternal group B strep screening, and safer food practices, E. coli and other gram-negative organisms account for the majority of infections now diagnosed in febrile infants. Gram-positive infections account for only about 20% of serious bacterial infections, and these include group B strep, Staph aureus, and enterococcus. Remember that late-onset group B strep infections occurring after one week of life is not decreased by maternal GBS treatment at delivery. What is the most common site of bacterial infection in febrile infants? Urinary tract infections, as I mentioned, are the most common cause of serious bacterial infections with E. coli being the most common pathogen. UTIs account for about 85% of all bacterial infections diagnosed. The concern for concurrent bacteremia, meningitis, or long-standing renal injury drives current practices of CSF testing, admission, and IV antibiotics. Bacteremia and meningitis occur much less frequently, with bacteremia being diagnosed in about 1-2% to of febrile infants and bacterial meningitis in less than 1%. So Dr. McLeod, you've given me a whole lot to be worried about. How can I risk stratify these febrile infants? We use a combination of age, clinical appearance, and lab values to identify the infants at highest risk for severe infection. The first risk stratifying criteria were designed at large single pediatric centers. These are the Boston, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, and Rochester criteria. All of these guidelines were designed to have a high negative predictive value so infants with occult bacteremia or meningitis were not missed. Generally speaking, infants that are ill-appearing or less than 28 days of age are identified to be at higher risk for bacterial infection and are admitted for empiric antibiotics after blood, urine, and CSF cultures are obtained. Infants that are greater than 28 days of age and well-appearing are at lower risk for serious bacterial infections and at minimum should receive a CBC with differential, blood culture, catheterized urinalysis, and urine culture before deciding on a lumbar puncture, need for empiric antibiotics, and disposition. Just to be sure that I understand this correctly, febrile infants less than 28 days old are high risk and should have the full workup, including LP regardless. But those older than 28 days and well-appearing may have a more limited evaluation? That's right. We're learning that certain low-risk infants older than 28 days may be safely followed as outpatients after blood and urine samples are obtained. What is the role of using the white blood cell count and inflammatory markers in these patients? 
That's a great question, Zach. Unfortunately, neither an abnormal white blood cell count nor an elevated band count have been shown to be reliable markers of bacterial infection in febrile infants. Compared with an abnormal white blood cell count, an elevated C-reactive protein and procalcitonin have a greater sensitivity and specificity for bacterial infections. Procalcitonin rises more quickly and is more specific for bacterial infections than other inflammatory markers, but the limitations for procalcitonin include that it's not widely available and may have significant costs. So just to emphasize, just because the white count is normal or you don't see bands, the patient could be sick and there could be a serious bacterial infection. So how do you use CRP and procalcitonin in your practice? There is more evidence for using procalcitonin in risk-stratifying febrile infants as compared to CRP. What is very important is that we do not rely on inflammatory markers alone, but use them alongside of our physical exam and other screening labs. I recommend only getting a procalcitonin if a negative result is going to help you avoid lumbar puncture, shorten the patient's ED stay, or prevent a hospital admission. There is evidence that procalcitonin is not very helpful in infants less than a month of age because these infants are already at such high risk for bacterial infections. Procalcitonin has been best studied in risk stratifying infants older than one month who have a negative urinalysis and a normal absolute neutrophil count to help guide if they require a further workup, which might include a lumbar puncture and empiric antibiotics. So how are febrile infants managed differently today as compared to when the Boston, Philadelphia, and Rochester criteria were developed? So since those criteria were developed, there has been widespread use of haemophilus and pneumococcal conjugate vaccines and maternal group B strep prophylaxis, which has led to significant drop in the incidence of bacteremia and meningitis in neonates. As the risk of invasive bacterial infections have dropped, there has been a focus to reduce harm from over-evaluation and treatment of low-risk infants. This is why the step-by-step and the PCARN febrile infant clinical prediction rules were developed. Tell our listeners more about these clinical prediction rules. Let's start first with the step-by-step approach. This algorithm that was published in 2016 uses screening labs including urinalysis, procalcitonin, C-reactive protein, and absolute neutrophil count to identify low-risk febrile infants greater than 21 days old. This protocol was validated over 2,000 well-appearing febrile infants less than 90 days old presenting to pediatric EDs. Authors found that well-appearing febrile infants who had, one, a negative urinalysis, meaning no white blood cells in the urine, two, procalcitonin less than 0.5 nanograms per milliliter, and number three, a CRP less than 2 milligrams per deciliter or an ANC less than 10,000, were very unlikely to have an occult bacterial infection with a negative predictive value over 99%. The authors suggested that these infants who met all of the above criteria may be safely managed without antibiotics or lumbar puncture. That's a lot of numbers, and the details are critically important. Just to be on the safe side, I always recommend that you use an external resource such as MDCalc, pulling this up to make sure that you're using exactly the right cutoff, as some of these algorithms use slightly different cutoffs for what is considered normal. MDCalc has all of the algorithms that we've used today covered and I highly recommend you use them, even if you're very familiar with them. 
So step-by-step requires that the infant be well-appearing, greater than 21 days old, have a normal UA, procalcitonin, CRP, and ANC. How did the step-by-step perform compared to some of the older diagnostic criteria that we previously discussed? In this study, the step-by-step algorithm outperformed the Rochester criteria that missed twice as many patients with bacteremia and meningitis. So what about the PCARN rule that you mentioned earlier? The PCARN clinical prediction rule was published in 2019, and it's very similar. They prospectively studied over 900 well-appearing febrile infants less than 60 days old presenting to pediatric EDs. They were also able to exclude invasive bacterial infections with greater than 99% certainty in well-appearing patients who had, one, a normal UA, two, an ANC less than 4,000, and three, a procalcitonin less than 0.5 nanograms per milliliter. Okay, so the PCARN criteria is just a little bit different. They use well-appearing infants less than 60 days instead of 90 days, as in the step-by-step, and they require also a normal urinalysis, an ANC of less than 4,000, and a procalcitonin less than 0.5. The absolute neutrophil count less than 4,000 is much lower than the 10,000 included in step-by-step. I assume that this will exclude many febrile infants, but may be helpful to reduce lumbar punctures and unnecessary antibiotics in some patients. Exactly, but remember that these clinical prediction rules are not appropriate for infants less than a month as they are at much higher risk of meningitis and bacteremia than infants older than one month. Also remember these algorithms cannot replace a careful history and physical exam and the experience of the treating physician. They should only be used to supplement your clinical decision making. Overall, these patients will receive the best care when the emergency and inpatient providers agree to use a standardized treatment algorithm. There is good evidence that we can reduce unnecessary lumbar punctures, admissions, and antibiotics in a selected low-risk patient. I love what you were saying about how it's important to develop a standardized treatment algorithm with your colleagues both upstairs as well as downstairs. This is the last group of patients that you want to go cowboy on and just sort of guess or make something up at 2 a.m. Having these conversations to make sure everyone is on the same page is critically important. And more junior learners should rely on the experience of attendings that may choose to be more cautious, particularly if there's something that just doesn't quite sit right about the patient presentation. So Dr. McLeod, how do you recommend we manage well-appearing infants who are greater than 28 days old and the initial blood and urine labs are normal? So those are infants at low risk of bacterial infection and they may be appropriately managed on the outpatient setting with close primary care follow-up without a lumbar puncture. This is assuming that the family has access to transportation and an accurate working phone number in case their blood or urine culture becomes positive. If you are unsure about your patient's access to care, then I would recommend monitoring them closely as an inpatient. One point that should be clear is that antibiotics should not be given unless blood, urine, and CSF cultures have been obtained to avoid a misdiagnosis and partial treatment of bacterial meningitis. How do you choose empiric antibiotics for those infants that are deemed to be high risk for infection? Empiric antibiotic choices should cross the blood-brain barrier and target the most common pathogens such as E. coli and group B strep. 
Commonly, for infants less than 28 days, this includes ampicillin plus either an aminoglycoside such as genomycin or an advanced generation cephalosporin such as cefotaxime. Ampicillin is included for these young infants due to the small risk of listeria or enterococcal infection, both of which are resistant to cephalosporins. For infants at high risk for HSV, acyclovir should also be used until HSV is excluded. For infants greater than 28 days of age, a third-generation cephalosporin such as ceftriaxone is often used as monotherapy. You may need to add vancomycin if there's a high prevalence of beta-lactam-resistant strep pneumonia in the community or if the infant becomes ill-appearing. And also remember, ceftriaxone should be used with caution in neonates less than one month as it displaces bilirubin from albumin and may increase the risk of chronicterus. So next, this is a common question that we get all the time on the pediatric ward. How do you use respiratory viral testing in these infants? I believe viral testing should not be done routinely in these patients. These viral panels can be quite expensive, but may be helpful in a select few. I recommend only using respiratory viral testing in infants with actual URI symptoms or if there is a high suspicion for influenza. Overall, febrile infants that test positive for a viral infection are less likely but are still at risk to have a concurrent bacterial infection. Positive respiratory or CSF viral testing may allow the admitting team to plan for an earlier discharge instead of the typical 48-hour rule-out. Unfortunately, not all positive viral tests are reliable. Because PCR testing can be overly sensitive and may detect asymptomatic viral shedding for weeks following an infection, this is especially true for rhinovirus, which can remain positive for over a month following the initial infection. I want to be sure to emphasize that a positive viral PCR test in a febrile infant does not exclude a concurrent bacterial infection. I'd like to agree with Dr. McLeod that this test is not something that you should order on every patient. There are some patients that might benefit from it due to a shortened hospital course, but at our institution, this test costs about $1,000. This is very expensive, especially since it can't definitively rule out bacterial infections. Thanks. That's a lot of good information for our listeners. As we move towards the end of our discussion, we'll finish up our case. So our six-week-old female patient was well-appearing and initially had a limited evaluation with blood and urine testing. Urinalysis was notable for 10 to 15 white blood cells per high-powered field and a positive leukocyte esterase. White blood cell count was 10,000, and the differential was notable for 70% neutrophils. According to the PCARN rule, she was determined to be high risk because of the abnormal UA and the ANC greater than 4,000. She had a lumbar puncture in the ED and was started on empiric ceftriaxone prior to admission. At 24 hours, her urine culture became positive for E. coli, but blood and CSF cultures remained negative. She was discharged home after an appropriate course of IV antibiotics for her febrile UTI and closed primary care follow-up. Dr. McLeod, do you have anything else that you wanted to mention before we wrap things up? For our listeners, remember, a detailed history and complete head-to-toe physical exam are essential to appropriately managing these vulnerable patients. All febrile infants determined to be at high risk for bacterial infection must be treated with empiric antibiotics and acyclovir if needed while waiting for culture results. Next, 
low-risk infants greater than 28 days without concerning findings on history or physical exam may be risk stratified with blood, urine, with or without CSF testing. A discussion at your institution may be needed between the ED and pediatric hospitalist group to determine protocols to best care for these low-risk infants. Remember, no antibiotics should be given to low-risk infants without first obtaining urine, blood, and CSF cultures to prevent partially treating an unrecognized serious bacterial infection. And finally, community emergency physicians and pediatricians should feel free to call their referral center if they have any questions or feel uncomfortable with managing these infants. The care of sick kids is a team sport, and it's far, far more important for you to reach out early to these institutions and ask them questions. The last thing anyone wants is for something to be managed in an outpatient setting that ideally should have been admitted, and a simple phone call can clarify this. In my experience, the experts upstairs have been exceptionally helpful, and if you're unsure about what the best thing to do for a patient is, it's best to ask early. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia and Augusta University. We welcome any comments, suggestions, or feedback. You can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Also, remember this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. We look forward to speaking with you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.